0: Well, it is always a uh, joy and a treat for me to come and to share with you. If you have your Bibles, please meet me in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we're going to look at verses 21 to 35. And as you're turning there, let me just say how much I love uh, Sandy Wilson and how much I love Second Presbyterian Church. When we first got here, Memorial Day week in 2003, I just, at the top of my list was to figure out... Um, the key strategic churches in the city, and I wanted to get to know those pastors. So here's little old me. Um, Our church is um, about 26 people at that time, and I just cold call, uh, and I won't even name the other pastors, but I just cold call a bunch of pastors. The only one who returned my phone call and invited me to their office, didn't know me, was Sandy Wilson. And Now, that just means a lot to me, and that speaks volumes to me, that he would spend time with me. And that just kind of began um, uh, kind of a quarterly rhythm that we would just have that carries to this day. I was just in his office the other day uh, eating lunch with him, and uh, I come with a list of questions. I kill him with questions, and I talked him into leaving y'all's church on July 29th to come preach for us at Fellowship, and so he'll probably kill me for saying that, but uh, he's going to come and preach for us. He asked me what I wear every Sunday. To, I honestly wear jeans, but I told him I wore a robe, uh, so <laughs> we'll keep that our little secret, okay? Uh, but Fellowship's going to look at him like he's crazy when he shows up in a robe, but um, I just cannot say enough about Sandy Wilson, how much I love him, how much I love Second Presbyterian Church. i um I just absolutely adore what you guys are uh, are about. Matthew chapter 18, I, I really don't have anything new to say. I asked Sandy, what do you want me to preach on? He says, just talk about something that's near and dear to your heart. And uh, we've been in the gospel of Matthew as a church really for about three years now. This is where we've been hanging out. We'll probably get through it in 2018, somewhere along those lines. <laughs> I'm just kidding. But um, uh, Matthew chapter 18, pick, pick me up in verse 21. And we'll just read through verse 35, lift up some thoughts, be extremely practical uh, with us this morning, and then we'll we'll call it a morning. Uh, it says Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times. But 70 times 7, or one translation says 77 times. By the way, I want to talk about the most difficult math problem in the world this morning. Verse 23: Therefore, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, you might want to underline that phrase. That is a, a huge key to understanding. Jesus's story and since he could not pay verse 25 his master ordered him to be sold With his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made So the servant fell on his knees imploring me have patience with me and I will pay you everything now This is ridiculous because one talent was worth 15 years wages This guy owes 10,000 talents and his response is have mercy with me and I'll repay you. Are you kidding me? Now, that is religion, by the way. The mindset of religion is is really a works-oriented view. So religious people think that they can pay off an insurmountable debt, when in reality, we cannot. Verse 27, this is the key verse here. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant, you might want to underline this word, released him and forgave him the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt Punchline. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you. Listen to the phrasing here: "If If you do not forgive your brother from your not from your mouth or from your actions, but if you do not forgive from your heart. Again, I want to talk about the most difficult math problem in the world. I want to talk about forgiveness. Um, The name Charles Roberts might ring a bell. If it sounds faintly familiar to you, it is because uh, this was a 32-year-old man who several years ago, um, his suicide note would tell us, um, found himself frustrated with God. And so, in order to take his frustrations out on God, he decided, true story, to enter into an Amish community schoolhouse. Um, His plan that day was simple. He was going to sexually assault Um, Some fourth grade or fifth grade girls and then once he was done he was going to unload his shotgun on them. So here he goes. He uh, goes to this uh, one room Amish schoolhouse. He uh, has his tape. Uh, he has his guns, he walks into the schoolhouse, uh, takes ten girls, uh, begins the process of um, binding them, um, and he is about to begin the sexual assault when all of a sudden the police cars show up. He now realizes that he must now expedite his plan, and so he skips the sexual assault part of his plan. He takes his gun and unloads on these ten girls to the horror of everyone there and later on to the horror of the global community. Uh, Thankfully, five of these young girls lived. Uh, They were in a hospital in serious condition, but five died as word uh, was leaked out to the global community. Um, Like you, my heart was just pricked and grieved. What kind of a deranged person would do something like this? Um, Word began to get out to the global community, though, that not only had these five girls who were in the hospital, they were struggling to hang on for dear life. But the Amish have no medical insurance. And so the question on the table now became, how would they pay these mounting medical bills? Understanding they didn't have any insurance, the global community decided that what they would do would be spontaneously, and a wonderful act of philanthropy and generosity, would be to donate funds to this Amish community to pay for their medical expenses. When it was all said and done, some $4.3 million came in to these Amish parents, and leaders. At this point, though, is when the Amish community did something that would astound the world. They get this $4.3 million, and they beg the question... Yeah, we've got money to pay for their medical expenses, but what about the family of Charles Roberts, the person who who wounded and killed our kids? What about his family? And so the Amish met and they decided to take a significant amount of the $4.3 million and leave it to the widow and her kids so that they might be able to survive and thrive and that her kids might be able to go to school. Uh, They then went over to the house of Charles Roberts They embraced his widow, the wife of the one who had inflicted harm on their children. They hugged her. They said, we forgive you. A reporter was taking in this scene, and he was dumbfounded by what he saw. Who does that? Who does that? And he says to one of the Amish elders, forgive? Why did you forgive? And this Amish elder simply respond, it's because we're Christians. That's what Christians do. We forgive. We forgive. In our story... This morning, we'll walk through all the nuances of it, but in our story, Cliff Notes version, a, a man, a servant that represents us, he has racked up a debt, an insurmountable debt that he could never, ever repay. That debt, by the way, represents our sins. The king, in, a, in an ironic, if not idiotic move, he's been violated he's been offended this debt has been accrued against him the text says in verse 27 that out of pity for this man he he releases him he forgives him he lets it go that king is indicative of what god has done for us uh, if you get nothing else i say i want you to get this statement We are no more like the world than when we, like the world, have been violated, yet we hold a grudge, or we lash out, or we hold on to the offense. That's too easy. That is to look like the world, and yet flip side, we are no more like Jesus than when we, like him, have been violated. Wronged. Sin against. And yet, when we like him, let it go. We release it. Unforgiveness is the insignia of Satan's kids, forgiveness is the insignia of God's kids. The most human thing you can ever do is to, unfor- is to not forgive, but the most unhuman thing you could ever do is to forgive and forgive. I want to talk about the most difficult math problem in the world, 70 times 7. I want to ask the question, why should I forgive? And then what does forgiveness look like? But before we go any further, will you pray with me? Father, what a joy it is to be with my brothers here. Thank you, Lord God, for what you're doing through this great church, these great men, uh, the influence that is in this room, and um, Lord, the damage that could be done for the kingdom of God. We bless you for them. Father, I do pray that you would speak powerfully, passionately, potently to our hearts this morning, that your spirit, your gospel would be invasive. Lord, I don't know anything about what's going on in these men's lives but I do know what is universal is we keep inhaling and exhaling. We will, we will be wronged. Um, all of us know what it's like to be gossiped about, to be talked about, violated. Maybe on the other side of a business deal, gone south because someone didn't keep their promise. We all know what it's like to be wronged. And so, Father God, I, I do pray that you would equip us with what it looks like to forgive. God, we ask you to that end that I'm available to you in Christ's name. Amen. I love Matthew 18. I would, um, I I think, no overstatement, I think 90% of the problems in the church of Jesus Christ is that, I'll say it this way, 90% of the problems in the church of Jesus Christ are interpersonal. We don't know how to navigate the sin in each other's lives. I, I just, I've been around this church thing for quite a while and I am more and more convinced at the age of 39 than ever before that if Christ followers, if we would just live Matthew 18, it would make a world of difference in our marriages, in our friendships, in our relationships, in our parenting, as churchmen, in the church of Jesus Christ. So I, I just w- want to really encourage you, soak in, inhale, exhale, do Matthew 18, and you will see your relationships go to another level. Um, the reason for this is this. You walk through Matthew 18, there's a couple of things that become very clear. Jesus, number one, um, the whole premise to Matthew 18, when it talks about human relationships, it assumes this. It assumes people are messy. I want you to settle it. There's no such thing as a mess-free individual. All of us have issues. All of us have baggage. Um, the reason for that is because all of us are born sinners, If you read Galatians chapter 5, as Paul is just talking about the works of the flesh, I was just reading this in my quiet time the other morning. Just go through that list again. Uh, Dissensions, divisions, envy, jealousy, strife. The primary modus operandi of the flesh is relational dysfunction. Dysfunction. So I just want you to understand, it kills me to hear non-believers or, 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 or unchurched people say, you know, I used to go to church, I don't, I don't go to church anymore because church people are too messy. Well, here's what, here's what I always tell them, as if the frat house isn't. As if the college dormitory isn't. You put two people together, there's bound to be mess. Settle it. Settle it. Um, I said in a mixed audience, men and women, I said, I love it when women say, you know, I don't do well with women relationships because women are too messy as if you're not. Okay, I didn't get the amens on that one. But I I, I want us to, to settle it. You're messy. I'm messy. All God's people are messy. All right. So uh, l- l- let's do something a little culturally I- irrelevant. I grew up in the black church. In the black church, when we preach, we typically have people turn to their neighbors. Um, I understand I'm in a different context, but here's, here's l- what I want to do. Turn to the person next to you and say, you're a mess. All right? All right? Now, now that we've settled that, we should breathe easier. You, you, you get to know Brian Loretz, Um you, you hang out with me for a while. I promise you, I'm not going to mean to. I'm, I'm not going to mean to, but I'm going to. I'm going to do something that's going to offend you. I, I, I'm going to do something that's going to hurt you. I, I am. I'm a. Now, here, here's where we get in, in. Here's where we get in, in trouble in the Bible Belt. The, the, the preeminent value down south is niceness. We're so nice. Now niceness and messiness don't go well. So what we typically do down south is, right? It says, I, 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 I want to be nice. I just hold you at bay. Um, men, we don't do good at relationships because relationships demand a level of intimacy, and many of us are not good at that. So we just typically hold people. We're so nice. Okay? Because the truth of the matter is, if I let you in, You're going to get a whiff of my mess, right? Now, Matthew 18, Jesus presupposes mess. And one of the things Jesus says in Matthew 18 is this. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Boom, stop right there. If we're going to have relationships that flourish, because here's typical human behavior is, I get to know you. You get to know me. I see the mess. You wrong me. You do something that I don't like. Boom! I'm out. I start to I start to emotionally moonwalk. Okay, that was a Michael Jackson reference. I should have used it Second Presbyterian, but anyways, um, I start to emotionally withdraw. Right. Now, if you live that way, if every if the first time you smell mess on a person, or the first time uh, someone violates you, you just you just kind of put up a wall. You set up a boundary. You move away. You, 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 You're never going to know the joys of long-term sustained friendship. You just will never. So what Matthew 18, it it tells us, here's how you have deep, long-term sustained friendships. Someone does something to tick you off. Don't withdraw. Don't go have a prayer meeting about them. Don't gossip. Go and tell them his fault. Then this phrase, between you and him Alone. I, mean, it, it, I wish I could get into the Greek. <laughs> I mean, it's, just, it's so simple. But we church people don't do this well. Um, key phrase, write it down. What Jesus is talking about here is relational courage. Big picture principles, Matthew 18, people are messy. Okay? Okay? It's interesting. In the whole Gospels, Jesus only uses the word church twice. Once in Matthew 16, once in Matthew 18. It's interesting to me, the second time he uses the the term church, he presupposes mess. Jesus is not shocked by messy behavior in the church. We're sinners. Okay? Um, When when, when my one-year-olds were learning to walk... And they, they fell down. Boom! I did not go, you idiot! Just like your mother. <laughs> no. They're one. They're going to fall. We're going to mess up. We're humans. We're going to sin. Jesus says one of the keys to long-term, sustained, healthy relationships... Is relational courage. And here's where our preeminent value of niceness down south. I grew up in Atlanta, I'm not ripping on southern people. I, I'm one, I'm one of you, okay? Where niceness gets us in trouble is someone does something to us that we don't like, we won't say anything to them because we don't want to be perceived as not being nice. Are you, you are we tracking with this? Okay? But by the way, as an African-American preacher, I preach faster if I hear something, all right. Let's say, amen, preach it, brother. When you're ready for me to end, say, bring it on home. We'll bring it on home something, all right? So <laughs> relational courage. Now, secondly, there's a whole lot of this stuff. Jesus says, people are messy. Boom. Settle it. You want, you want long-term, deep, intimate relationships, relational courage, keep short accounts, second big picture principle, because people are messy you better carry with you an extra dose of forgiveness some of us the reason why it's not deep the reason why we just we go from friendship to friendship or we've given up on friendships is because we just i'm violated i'm hurt boom wall goes up i'm done I'm done As our passage opens up, Peter's been listening to Jesus, okay? He's been listening to Jesus, and he goes, all right, Jesus says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Now Peter begs the question. Here's how our passage begins. Peter goes, uh, how many times? And then he throws out a number, seven. Now, in Peter's mind, he's being generous, because uh, the Jewish rabbis in Peter and Jesus' day taught uh, that pretty much um, you, you can give a person three mulligans, Right? They actually taught, Jewish rabbis taught during Jesus' day, uh, if someone violates you, 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 they've got three times to do that. On the fourth time, boom, you're done. Now, G, now, Peter, when he throws out the number seven, he takes that number three, multiplies it times two, adds one for good measure, lands on the number of, com- of, uh, of completeness, and, and he thinks, man, I'm going the extra mile. Seven times. And Jesus says, no, Peter, I don't say to you seven times. I say to you, 70 times 7. To make his point, Jesus now tells a story. It's the story of a king who's got a servant. The servant has accrued a debt. The king, again, represents God. The servant represents us. And the debt represents our sin. Again, notice 10,000 talents. One talent equals 15 years' worth of wages. A lot of money. Um, to put the number 10,000 talents in perspective, um, historians and archaeologists have actually found uh, the budget that it took to run the region of Galilee in Jesus' day. Their annual budget to run the region of Galilee in Jesus' day was 300 talents. Jesus says 10,000 uh, one scholar says this is millions of dollars, another scholar I think is William Barclay says no it's billions of dollars and another scholar Dale Bruner says no it's zillions of dollars. The whole point is this, imagine honestly, I'm not no hyperbole, it's like putting America's debt on one person. And here is this person, he has America's debt on them. No hope to repay it. Verse 27. Will you look at it again with me? And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Who does this? This is the gospel. I want you to see the cross. Here's the scarlet thread. He's saying, you were that servant. You had accrued a debt with God. You could never repay. I mean, you you could not even begin to think of repaying it. And yet God demonstrated his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. Do you know what happens to us if God would have said, no, repay it. You violated me. You've wronged me. Not just one time, but an infinite amount of times you have wronged me and you're going to pay every penny. How do we do that? In eternity in hell. And yet, God did the unthinkable for you. God did the unthinkable for me. He released us. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ, I want you to understand you are not intrinsically a good person. I I just want you to understand that I I talk to so many people don't know Jesus and their fundamental operating system is, hey, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I've messed up. I've I've done bad, but I'm I'm basically a good person, sort of like me. When I was in grade school, um, on occasion, I'd fail a test and without fail, whenever I'd fail a test, I would always stand outside the door after class and conduct my own Gallup poll. What'd you get? 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 Why? What am I doing there? See, I'm hoping that everyone else failed because if everyone else failed, then the teacher would have to grade on something called the curve. All right? Now the curve is not reality. What the curve is, it's it's a way of saying everybody failed. Brian, you may have gotten a fifty nine, but this person may have gotten a thirty. Okay, so yeah, you're better, but you've still failed. You still failed. And yet, there would always be that one know-it-all nerd of a kid, man, that I would want to lay hands on. Why would I be angry? Because that kid broke the curve. You know why they were angry with Jesus? Because when Jesus showed up, he broke the curve. Jesus showed up, and he said, you're not the standard. I'm the standard. And because of that, you next to your neighbor... I'll say it this way. So my my youngest son is... um, Huge, big kid. His spiritual gift is eating. I've already got it figured out. When Jaden, hopefully in his 20s, when he'll call me and go, Dad, I've I've fallen in love with this girl. How do you know she's the one? I already figured out what I'm going to say to him. When you can look into her eyes the way you look into my refrigerator, you're the one. She's she's the one. Jaden loves to eat. Um, true story. The other day, me and Miles were hanging out. Uh, my, my, that's my middle son. And, uh, he eats half his cheeseburger and not much of his fries. He says, well, can we take this home to Jaden? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's take it home, Jaden. We got it to go. Walk into the house. Uh, right as we're walking in, my wife, Corey, she's putting grilled cheese on Jaden's plate. He's about to eat his grilled cheese. But then we bring in this cheeseburger. So Jaden's got a conundrum. And Corey says, which one? Cheeseburger or grilled cheese? And, and, uh, Jaden says, well, I have to choose. I want both. I want both. And so I watched this seven-year-old kid eat both, just scarfs down the fries, the cheeseburger, and the grilled cheese. And then he gets finished. He loves his TV show. He gets finished eating both lunches, and he goes, man versus food, and man won. (laughs) Now, I hate to say this. I don't know if you have a seven-year-old son or grandson, but I think if if my son is in the octagon against your seven-year-old, I'm putting my money on my seven-year-old. I think he'll just have your seven-year-old bawling his eyes out. But my seven-year-old against me, no match. No match. What are we saying? If your standard of goodness is other people, they may score a 55 and you a 39, but in God's ledger, both are failing grades. We have accrued a debt, and yet God through Jesus did the unthinkable. Let it go. Now, irony of ironies. This man, having been forgiven, goes out and finds someone who, in the scheme of things, owes him pennies. Pay me! The master hears about it and goes, Are you kidding me? All that I have forgiven you. And you want to hold a grudge? You want to get passive aggressive? You want to shut down your heart? See, let's just tell the truth here. Most of us are way too nice and way too sophisticated when someone wrongs us to lash out. Now, we're, we're way too cool for that. We just wall off our hearts. We just give the silent treatment. And he says, here's the deal throw him in jail until he should pay the debt, which means he's never getting out. What is God's point? Jesus is saying a failure to forgive lands you in hell for all of eternity. Boom. He's not preaching work salvation. Jesus is saying one of the clear indicators that I have come to the foot of the cross, that the gospel is alive and well in my heart, one of the measuring rods that I know I'm saved is I forgive. Let it go. I forgive. Parenthesis. Forgiveness and the pursuit of justice can go hand in hand. If you take the Sandusky trial, I will assume guilt. I'm not saying, uh, let's just assume that he is. I think those boys are right to pursue justice. Absolutely. I think they are right to go to the court of appeal, to, to go to the court of law. And if he's done it, he should be thrown in jail. But you can pursue justice legally and forgive personally at the same time. So don't anyone leave here saying um, there is no place for the legal realm. Eh, Yeah, there is. There is. But as it relates to Brian's heart, I let it go. Let it go. Why do I forgive? Answer, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Show me anyone who does not forgive and I will show you someone who at the very least does not understand the gospel. And I will also show you someone who quite possibly may not be saved. What does forgiveness look like? What does it mean? Three things. Forgiveness, number one, is irrational. Forgiveness, number two, is costly. And forgiveness, number three, is freeing. Forgiveness is irrational, it is costly, and it is Freeing. Here's this man, he owes billions of dollars, verse 27 again, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It does not make sense. It totally doesn't make sense. What makes sense is you wrong me, you need to pay something back. What makes perfect sense, you wrong me, we've got to keep score. That makes sense. That's rational, isn't it? That's rational. Forgiveness fundamentally, settle it, fundamentally forgiveness is irrational. Think of the movies that move us. Um, I love mafia movies, which again, as an African-American person, I should not because we're always the first to die in mafia movies. Um, if you've watched Goodfellas and you saw Samuel Jackson, you knew he was only going to be around for a few minutes. But anyways, I still love them. Um, and so if you take The Untouchables, the movie the, the Untouchables, 1987, here's Sean Connery and Kevin Costner in a moving scene in that movie. Sean Connery says to Kevin Costner, they pull a knife out on you, you pull a gun out on them. They send one of yours to the hospital, you send one of theirs to the morgue, and that makes perfect sense. Or eight years later, 1995. You know, here's a guy, the English have killed his wife, and what does William Wallace do? He does not say, I'm going to let it go. No, he goes and attacks the English. He kills them, and he launches an all-out assault on them, and it makes perfect sense. Um, 2004, man on fire. don't Don't know if you ever saw the Denzel Washington version. Here he is. He's a bodyguard, and they kidnap this little girl. He's supposed to be watching over him, and what does he do? He goes on a killing spree on this girl's attacker's off the fingers, all that stuff, on and on. We can go, now watch this. As we're watching those movies, something in us goes, that's right. That's right. Don't let it go. They wrong you, get back. Especially especially, um, in a man's heart. You've never counseled your kid. Someone slugs you in your kid's face. Oh, don't say anything turn the other cheek. Something in us, especially as as men go, get back. It's not what Jesus teaches. I forget who said it. I think Dale Bruner said it. Yeah. The insignia of the world's heroes is revenge. Yet the insignia of God's heroes is forgiveness. Listen to this quote by C.S. Lewis. Will you hear it? To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. It is perhaps not so hard to forgive a single great injury, but to forgive the incessant provocations of daily life, to keep on forgiving the bossy mother-in-law, the bullying husband, the nagging wife, the selfish daughter, the deceitful son. How can we do it? Only, I think, Lewis says, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say in our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse it is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. There is no hint of exceptions. And God means what He says. Forgiveness is irrational. What's rational is to keep score. What's irrational is to let it go. Secondly, forgiveness is costly. So let me get this straight king, he owes you billions of dollars. Billions. I I, I get it. He can never repay, but you can get something back. He just lets it go. In the process of letting it go, he's out some money. Forgiveness is costly. Tim Keller says it this way. uh, Forgiveness is a suffering. Why? When you wrong Brian Loritz in a a passive-aggressive way, um, I want to withhold now from you. And I want to make you feel that. You've wronged me. I am going to withhold. And I want you to feel, I want you to suffer. Because I think through my unforgiveness, you're going to suffer. But for me to forgive, to let it go, while that blesses you, that inflicts a hint of suffering on me. We look no further than the cross for this. Was forgiveness costly to Jesus? It was a suffering for him. All of us have heard the name Corrie Tin Boom. Uh, Corrie ten Boom was thrown in a Nazi concentration camp because her family uh, provided safe havens for Jews against the Hitler regime. While in this Nazi concentration camp, uh, Corrie Tin Boom's sister was killed Years later, after she's out, Coryton Boom is speaking at a church, and um, right after speaking, a guy comes walking down the aisle with his hand extended. She recognizes him immediately. It is the Nazi concentration guard who killed her sister, Betsy. And he's walking down the aisle, and he says, I am a follower of Jesus now. Forgive me. Listen to what Cory ten Boom writes. Man's hand is extended. The same man who killed her sister. I had to do it, she writes. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition. That we forgive those who have injured us. So here she is. She's thinking these things. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand. I can do that much. You supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and then His healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. Forgiveness is irrational. Forgiveness is costly. But finally, forgiveness is freeing. So when the man's forgiven, boom, he's released. But when this man chooses not to forgive, he's incarcerated, literally and by his own unforgiveness. Unforgiveness is counterintuitive. We think that to not forgive damages the one that we're not forgiving, when in reality it is a bitter poison that damages you. That's why, and I want you to hear me, the greatest gift you can ever give yourself is forgiveness. Like many of your homes, Corey and I, we have an alarm system in our home, and at night, um, in order to um, turn it on uh, in a way that allows us to move about inside our house, we hit a button called stay and punch in the code. Now, this will do two things. Number one, um, this will keep those on the outside from getting close to us on the inside. But also, when we hit this button, stay in the code, we can't leave. We're trapped in our house. That's unforgiveness. You can always spot a person who has forgiveness issues, who has not let it go, because they've hit stay on the alarm system of their souls, and you can't get close. You can't get in. They can't get out. They are trapped by their own unforgiveness. Let me end with this. When I was 17 years old, there was a a pivotal point that happened in my life. Um, A close friend of mine named Craig Tarleton the age of 17 died. Um, I remember sitting in his funeral, and there in his funeral, God spoke to me, and I just really felt a call to vocational ministry. And so I started doing Bible studies, leading people to Christ, and then I wanted to go off to Bible college. And so um, here I am, African American man, grew up in Atlanta, um, go off to a Bible college up north. And uh, I said, Man, this is great, it's wonderful, can't wait to get there. Everybody's going to love Jesus. Um, I was uh, one of a handful of African-Americans, but I was excited about it, looking forward to it. Long story short, a couple months into it, one of my classmates called me a nigger. Talk about devastating. When that happened, I checked the box. I forgave him with my mouth, not with my heart. I said, white people are something else, especially conservative white evangelicals. I'll never. That's what I said. In my heart of hearts, I said, I'll never be around them again. When I graduated a couple years later, I remember sitting in my parents' Ford Aerostar. I took that thing to the prom, by the way. (laughs) Sitting in my parents' Ford Aerostar, cap and gown on, leaving campus. And I told myself, don't even look in the rearview mirror. This is the last time you'll be around white people again. Started working at a very large church in Atlanta, worked at a very large church in Los Angeles, 13,000 people. Um, I just always assumed I'd marry a black woman. Lo and behold, one of three non-African American women who are there, this girl is half Mexican, half Irish. Um, I fall in love with her at the same time I get called to work at a all white church practically in Pasadena. I'm going, oh, I felt like Jonah. Like I'm going to work, going to work for people I don't like. <laughs> then lo and behold, I get called to come to Memphis, Tennessee. I just, I'm not trying to go to Memphis, Tennessee. I've heard the stuff. Lead a multi ethnic church, but God said go. The whole time I'm preaching, but in my heart, I'm angry. And here's one of the things I've learned about unforgiveness. Unforgiveness affects those around you. I just, I would not let my white brothers get close, boom, but I'm preaching this message, glaring hypocrisy, just holding people at bay. I remember some of my African-American friends coming to visit me, going, dude, what happened to you? Where's the joy? Some of us have turned I know what it's like to turn into a different person because we didn't forgive. In other words, here's what the Lord started saying to me. You gave a guy, this thing happened, Brian, 15 years ago. You've given a guy power over you that you should never be. He's changed your personality. He's killed your joy. And I promise you, two years ago, I hate to admit this, it was just two years ago. I'm driving down Mendenhall. Um... About to get on 240, and the Holy Spirit speaks to me the same way I'm speaking to you now. He goes, how long are you going to hold on to this thing? Let it go. And right there, right before I got into 240, I'm at that light. I let it go. It wasn't instantaneously, but what started to happen is joy has started to come back. Man, I'm looking at my brothers in a different way. I'm allowing my white brothers to get closer to me. God's working on me. But it began when I said, I'm not going to give this person power over my joy and spirit any longer. I'm letting it go. Let's pray. Would you just stop for a moment in prayer? Who do you need to forgive? From your heart. That's what the text says. And would you ask the Spirit of God to give you grace to let it go, to release the debt, Father, gospel truth, we have violated you, we have sinned against you, We will sin against you. We will violate you today. We have accrued a debt with you. We have no hope of paying. But gospel truth number two, you have released us of our debt. That if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive Gospel truth number three, because we have accrued a debt with you we could not pay, because you have forgiven us, we are obligated to forgive others, not just from our lips, but from our heart. And for Brian Laritz to not let it go means that I don't understand and get the gospel. May this truth go with us.